Well, good morning, everyone. Today is the uh, last message in our You Asked For It summer series, and through the summer we've been asking some tough questions of God and His Scripture, and uh, not surprisingly, we found answers there. It turns out that terrorism and medically assisted suicide and gender fluidity are not surprising to God, and that He has provided us, in His own words, uh, everything useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's, that's what we're here about today. That's, that's why we are Christians. That's why we look into God's Word, is so that we're equipped for every good work out there, outside of these walls in culture, as well as in here. And, uh, and as we tackled each of these subjects, you might have noticed a theme, at least I hope you did, uh, kind of a recurring theme that occurred in every one of those messages is that regardless of the stance or, or whatever stance that we properly take towards the outside and to the issue of the culture, the recurring theme has been what is our, what are we called to do? What, what is the church's response? We can have thoughts about these topics. We can have ideas about what we think is right and wrong. But ultimately, in each one of these messages, I hope what you took away was how do we then respond? What do we do? What are we called as Christians to do to respond to these things? And you may have also noticed that there's a common theme to that answer, if you had picked up on it, that in a culture that's turning farther and farther from God and is leaving more and more wounded in its wake because of these social and cultural decisions, that the response of God's people is always confidence in the gospel, which is that God is willing to die in order to redeem a rebellious world, And secondly, opening our doors as a church and our arms as God's people in love to care for them. So in all in all of those messages, you may not have noticed it because I was so sneaky about it, the answer was the same every time, okay? The answer is always the same. It's confidence in the gospel that God is at work to redeem in all of these situations, whether it's mental illness, whether it's addiction, whether it's... Uh, worshiping some idol in culture, whether it's fear over terrorism, wh- whatever is going on in the world, God's gospel is, is that he's working to redeem people in all of those situations. And the answer for us is always that we open up our doors here at the church, but more importantly in our own lives, we open up our arms in love to the people that are struggling because they are wounded by the culture that is leaving them behind and steering them in very wrong directions. And so the answer is always the same that it's the gospel and it's love. And so as we come to this last message on poverty and social justice, I know you guys pretty well, and I think you're pretty sharp. So you already know that I know that you know what the answer finally is, right? You know the final answer. How is the Bible going to inform us to respond to poverty and injustice? With hope in the gospel and love. That's the answer, right? I already know that you know the answer. That's the easy answer. The tougher question is, what does that actually look like? And the reason that's the harder question is because when you step back and look at the problem of poverty, it is remarkably complex. It is a tough issue, this issue of poverty and people who are living in lack. And historically, the church's answer, even our answer here at Lakeside, has been a little bit too simple. And so we need to go back to Scripture again, and we need to see what Scripture has to say about the poor and poverty and what, and what we do about it. 
I mean, when you think about churches, like we have a benevolent team, right? We have the JRHH, we have a benevolent fund, and, and you guys give exceedingly generously to that. So this message is not at all about you giving more in terms of benevolent giving, uh, because you guys give and, and we use that and it's fantastic. But, but we have this benevolent fund where we give money. And, and, and I know that you've all heard, because you're a sharp bunch, that you know it, you can't always solve a problem by throwing money at it. But if the problem is lack of money, isn't this the one problem that you could solve by throwing money at it? It just seems that way, right? I mean, the, the issue is lack of money. So of all problems you could solve that way, money seems to be the answer. But, but it's, we've been throwing money at the problem of poverty for millennia. And when I say we, I don't just mean the church. I mean the human race has been throwing money at the problem of poverty for thousands of years, and yet the poor are still with us. And so why is poverty so persistent? And if, and if we're called as a church to provide hope of the gospel and reach out in love, what, what shape does that hope take? What is the gospel to the listening ears of those who are in desperate need? And what love, what is love to them? What, what shape does love take in reacting to poverty? And so to know what our response should be, really be, and you know what the answer is going to be at the end, the gospel and love, but we need to shape it. And so I just want to take a little bit to just look at this question of what poverty is and, and how poverty comes about and what the Bible says about poverty and then how we as Christians respond to poverty in our midst and in the world. So one of the, one of the most direct and popular teachings to go to on the issue of po- poverty in the Bible is, is 1 John 3.17. And in 1 John, he, he sort of gives the answer. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And so, so John deals with this issue of a lack of material possessions. It's obviously the result of poverty. And as Christians, of course, we know that if we've received God's love, the expression of that love is certainly to care for those who are in need. And so we see poverty in that way, and Scripture sees it in that way as well. Like, we can't fool ourselves. The reality of poverty and the result of poverty is, in the end, a lack of things. It's a lack of money. It's a lack of sustenance. It's a lack of shelter. It's, it's, it's being in want. It's lack. But it's also not entirely that simple either. And one of the things that we do sometimes is we look at the end result and we think that's the problem, but the result is actually not the problem itself. The, the root issue of lacking material things is that a person ultimately lacks what the world values, and that's why they don't have things. People may be poor in money or possessions, but it's primarily because they're experiencing a poverty in some other area. They have a poverty of marketable skills, or they have a lack of social connections They lack influence. They are poor in health or even poor in spirit. And so there's a poverty in some other area of their life that results in the poverty of material and money and possessions. And at the end of the day, poverty is ultimately a lack of power, power over where you live, power over your own security, power over the choices you have available to you because of, again, a poverty in education or a lack of jobs in the area or social opportunities. And so when you don't have what the world values and you lack power, then the world basically throws you away and you end up with what we see on the surface is poverty and people who are poor because the world has essentially left them behind because they don't have anything the world wants. And so the state then of of being in poverty goes deeper than just a list of things a person lacks. People in poverty talk in terms of hopelessness and of loss of meaning and of loss of dignity and of shame. 
And so when we're talking about this issue of poverty, again, it's, it's, not, it's not just they don't have a hundred bucks. It's not just they don't have even food on the shelf. It's that they are poverty, they are poor, they are lacking in fundamental root things that cause this lack of, of material possessions. But then it goes even deeper than that. It's that they actually have a poverty of worth, a poverty of value in themselves, and they are suffering from shame and hopelessness. And so then as a church, we can't be simple in how we address this, right? We have to have a deeper understanding of poverty. We actually have to have God's understanding of poverty, right? The poverty that the Bible speaks of most often is not the sort of poverty where people are lazy or people are just uh, squandered the things that they already had. And there's lots of verses in the Bible about that, okay? God has no sympathy, so to speak, uh, about people who are lazy or who squander the things that they have. And, and there's a responsibility to them for the lazy or the deceitful. But the poverty that the Bible speaks about most is not that kind of poverty. The poor and the needy that we find God addressing in the law and the prophets and in the gospels and in the epistles is a neediness caused by either tragedy or oppression or in fact caused by pre-existing poverty. That poverty actually begets greater poverty. And so for where there's a poverty of health, it can lead to a poverty of sustenance. Where there's a poverty of spirit, it can lead to self-impoverishing behaviors. And the roots and causes of poverty are deep, and they're twisted up in the brokenness and sinfulness of mankind. And this is why poverty is also an issue of social justice. If you read in Proverbs 19.4, you would see that that God understands this. Scripture understands the complexities of, of poverty, that it's a social issue of marginalization. And in Proverbs 19, it reads, Wealth attracts many friends, but even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. Do you see, do you see what the, the writer here understands? Do you see what God is, is showing to us? That, that the poor have no connections. They have no neighbors. They have no relationships because they're poor. The poverty causes their neighbors to despise them. These are not people who are despicable and therefore despised and therefore poor. They're poor and therefore they're despised. And so the poverty itself is a social issue because the poor person loses all their friends and they lose their social connections and they lose opportunities, you know, to go work at this guy's lumberyard or to, you know, get a job at this restaurant or to drive truck for this friend of theirs. Because the wealthy, they got all those opportunities, right? They're great to be around. They have what the world wants and they attract all these friends and they have all these opportunities for them and for their children and for the guy that they know. But if you're poor, the Bible says, this is a social issue of marginalization because the poor are left abandoned. Even their best friends leave them. And so this is systemic poverty. The outcomes of poverty, which are crime and addiction and broken homes, are all amplified by social responses of marginalization and lack of connections and lack of opportunity, and it creates a cycle. And God knows this. The other thing Scripture recognizes, again, in Proverbs, is that poverty is a justice issue. It's a social issue, and it's a justice issue. It's an injustice issue of power. In Proverbs 13, 23 God tells us a poor man's field may produce abundant food, but injustice sweeps it away. So even when the poor people have something, it ends up getting taken away from them. Right? They can actually get themselves in a position where they're actually providing for themselves, but injustice comes along and sweeps away the little bit that they managed to create for themselves. And one of the ways that you know who the poor people are, like when you look at culture, you look at society, especially in Western society, it can be hard to tell who are the poor because we are very blessed in Canada in terms of systems to take care of people who are needy. 
It can be hard to see who the poor are, but, but one of the ways that you know who the poor are is that they are the people that regularly have things taken from them. They are the people that have what they have taken away. They lose their job to someone else, or they are literally stolen from because of the neighborhood that they have to live in. They have their stuff stolen on a regular basis, right? Or they're taken advantage of, uh, or they're forced into uh, into uh, ways of providing for themselves that are illegal, or or and that's at a personal level. But then socially or politically, um, sometimes the poor are not always well represented because they can't afford the lawyers and the lobbyists and all the people on their side. Right, And so they have child care subsidies removed, or they're taxed differently, or they have social programs shut down in their neighborhood. And those social programs, when they shut down, they don't affect the middle class. They don't affect the upper class. They affect the poor. And so they have these things taken away from them. And they're preyed upon by people who are unscrupulous. I mean, one of the blights of our country, and you see them everywhere you go, are these payday loan places. Right? Money Mart. Right? They've never got a dime from me. Right? They, they're not getting any money from most of you. Right? Because we don't need those places. But these payday loan places, I went online to check it out. In Ontario, they actually had to exactly, they had to put legislation in place because interest, annual interest rates were up in the thousands of percent. But now in Ontario, because of legislation, if for a $300 loan for 14 days, the total cost of borrowing is $54. That's an annual percentage rate of 469%. Okay, so when you're borrowing money on a payday loan, you're paying close to 500% interest on that loan. And people don't just do it once. You think, well, okay, if you do it once a year, you get 300 bucks, you pay the 50 bucks, you had to do it to pay the rent, whatever. But they don't do it once a year. They do it all year long. So they are paying 500% interest. They do it from paycheck to paycheck. And you say, well, just don't use those loans, you know? But they have no family. Remember Proverbs? They have no family, they have no friends, they have no support network around them. They have no line of credit. They may not even have an address. And so they have no alternative. They have to use these ways to get the money that they need right then for whatever reason. It's either get the 500% loan or don't put food on the table for my kids, for a lot of these people. And so we see that this is a systemic problem, that people, the little that the poor can even harvest gets taken for them. And the balances of justice and injustice are even more subtle than this. For instance, if you're a middle-class person who owns a nice little shop in a community and you're profiting from that shop and, and, and from the community around them, they, they're putting their labor and creativity into their product and the community hands over part of their wealth. If that shop owner lives in that same community, then the wealth that they create and acquire gets poured back into other shops in the community and it, and it stays there and it gets re-injected. That's, that's an economy in very shorthand. But if you own a shop and you work in one community but you live in another, or, or let's say you own many stores, let's say you are the owner of thousands of stores in many communities, but you have your head office and most of your upper management and staff is all housed in another community, then money comes out of those communities and does not go back in in exactly the same way. And, and that's a simplified version of more complex economics, but the results are the same. And so you ask yourself, but is that wrong? Like, is it wrong for me to have a bunch of stores? Or is it, is it wrong for me to want to live in a nice neighborhood and put my kids in a good school? Is it wrong for me to want security for my kids and me? No, it's not wrong for you. It's not wrong. But the very systems of, uh, that our society create imbalances that lead to injustice. So when we look at poverty, we have to understand that it's not just giving somebody 100 bucks. 
There are deep-rooted issues of poverty in that person's life that have led them to where they are. They have a poverty in terms of relationship, Proverbs tells us, because they are left even by their friends. They may have a poverty of family because of illness, because of sickness. They may have a poverty of their own health. They may have a poverty of spirit that we just cannot fix with money. Sometimes it's easier to understand these realities by seeing them on a global scale. Why do a billion people in the world right now live on less than $2 a day? Is it because they're lazy? Is it because they're stupid? Or is there a system stacked against them of oppression and a movement of wealth away from them and circles of influence and power that they have no control over? And any of you that are immigrants here, especially today, will will have this to thank, right? Like, why are you a middle-class person sitting here today? Is it because you were particularly intelligent or that you had, you know, picked yourself up by your bootstraps and got yourself here? Or was it because some grandfather or great-grandfather, by whatever opportunity, got on a boat and got over here and got you into a land of plenty from a land of lack and gave you opportunity that the people back home just don't have anymore, right? And so we got to recognize that the roots of poverty are complex and deep. And that God recognizes that. He shows us in his word that he knows that there are people who have a poverty of spirit and a poverty of health and a poverty of connections and a poverty of opportunity. So if that's what poverty is, and we also have to know as Christians, what is God's heart? And really quickly, I don't have to spend very much time here. We understand God's compassion for the poor. And what God says in his scripture and how to respond to this poverty, he says, respond with mercy. In Deuteronomy 15, back in his law to Israel, it's amazing. He says, there will be no poor among you if you do as God commands. Now, he also says the poor will always be with you. And Jesus repeats that later on in the Gospels. And he says that because he knows Israel is not going to do all the things that God commands them. Uh, But he says, if you would do this, if you could just be a whole nation, if you could be a whole world who did these things as I command you in the law, then you wouldn't have any poverty. He says, if there is a poor man among you, your brothers, Deuteronomy 15, in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Whatever he needs. Or another interpretation of that is lend him until he has no want. Don't just give him $100. Fix his problem completely. And this care for the poor was embedded in God's law. In other words, Israel... For one of the things in Leviticus that God talks about, Israel did not allow farmers to harvest to their full margins of their field. In other words, they had to leave the corners and they had to leave some of their fields behind for the gleanings. And we talked about that when we were in Ruth a couple years ago. Ruth took advantage of that. She could go into the farmer's fields and glean because the wealthy landowners were told, don't harvest everything for yourself. Leave a percentage behind for the poor so that they can come and get it with dignity. Work themselves to receive what they eat. And every third year, a double tithe was given for the poor. So you tithed in Israel to the temple, and every third year you doubled up your tithe. Okay? I've been here four years. You guys missed your double tithe last year. (laughs) Wow, I'm glad we're not under law anymore, right? But but that's what they did. They doubled their tithe. They gave 20% every third year. And then, you think that's bad. Every seventh year, all debts were forgiven and you left all of your fields and orchards fallow and just let whatever was there to grow up naturally. And you ate from that and everybody ate from that. You let all your fields just lie fallow and grow up naturally. Every seven years, you didn't do any planting and harvesting and you just let anybody come and take whatever they wanted to eat. That's how God provided in his law for the poor. 
And he said, if you did these things, there would be no poor among you. But he says, the poor will always be with you because God knows Israel's not going to do these things. And they didn't do these things, right? The reason they went into captivity uh, for all the years that they did is for all the Sabbaths that they missed. But there's a lot of things that Israel didn't do, and so they still had poor. But God is passionate about this, and he's passionate for justice on this matter. He says later on as a warning, he says, be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year is near, the year for canceling debts, and so that you do not allow ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. And so God says, look, I've given you this law, but be really careful. Be really careful that you're not thinking, you know what, I was going to lend this guy some money, but I just remembered next year's the Sabbath. And if I lend him this money, then he's probably just going to wait a year and say, I'm out, right? I don't have to pay you. It's the Sabbath. But God says, don't start to think that way. I didn't give you the law to try to game the system, to try to figure out how you end up ahead. That is wicked. And if that person cried out against you, then you have me to answer to. So God is serious about this socially. He's serious about this in terms of justice. He says in Psalms, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. He says in Proverbs, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. Ecclesiastes, he says the same thing. Isaiah, he says, this is this is Israel, of course, not doing what they were supposed to do. He says to, to his people Israel, I'm sick of your sacrifices. Don't bring me any more burnt offerings. I don't want the fat from your rams and other animals. I don't want to see the blood from your offerings of bulls and rams and goats. Learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, fight for the rights of widows. God basically says, don't bother coming to church, okay? I don't want to see you in church singing and doing your stuff when you're out there and there are people who are suffering and there are needy who need help. In Amos, he repeats it again, I hate and despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. He goes on basically saying the same thing through Amos that he said through Isaiah. I don't want to hear your songs. I don't want to hear your singing. I don't want to hear the melody of your harps. I'm not going to listen. But he says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And I could go on. There's, There's over 200 direct references to God's concern for the poor and his command for his people to share his concern. And that's just in the Old Testament. There's over 50 more in the New Testament. And that concern that God has for the poor leads Jonathan Edwards, often considered the last and one of the greatest Puritan pastors, to write, this is a duty to which God's people are under very strict obligation. It is not merely a commendable thing for a man to be kind and bountiful to the poor, but our bounden duty, as much as a duty as it is to pray or to attend public worship, and the neglect of it brings great guilt upon any person. Those are powerful words. He's saying this duty to care for the poor to a Christian is as important as showing up to church on Sunday. It's as important as worshiping God. It's as important as your prayer time. And this is Jonathan Edwards. He's not prone to exaggeration. He's very clear in his thinking. He's very clear in his understanding of Scripture. And he says this is how important it is to God. And we've read the Scriptures that he would get this from, right? Because God said, I don't want you to show up for church if you're neglecting the poor. So then how do we do this? How do we break the cycle of poverty and injustice? 
It's easy to stand back and look at the problem as massive and we can't make a difference to the poverty in the world. But notice that all of God's commands to his people regarding the poor are not causes, calls for massive social change. They're not calls for lobbies. They're not calls to go to the government and do this or that. They're not calls for changing things in any sort of dramatic way. All of God's commands to his people are supremely personal. They are the responsibility given to each individual to work out in their own relationship with the people that they're among. And so the first thing that we can do as a church to respond to this need and to really understand it is that the church needs to be a place where the poor can find community that doesn't discard them or treat them differently, right? And fosters real relationship. If what God says in Proverbs is is that the poor people have no friends, that those in poverty, everyone deserts them, then the response of God's people is to be the people that step into those broken relationships and step into that vacuum, that the church as a place, as a building, as a people, is a place where people can have the greatest need met in terms of friendship, in terms of opportunity, in terms of connections. If a root cause of poverty is that the world discards those that it does not value, then we're not surprised to find in the Bible telling us that the church is the place where the poor should find that they're not discarded, but welcomed and treated with dignity. In James chapter 2, the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, goes right after this. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so James says, look, this is simple. The church is a place where everyone is welcome, where there is dignity for all, where it doesn't matter how much money you have to decide how many friends you have. When you come into these doors, when you come into this fellowship and this family of believers, you have friends and you have opportunity and you have relationships and you have social connections and you have dignity and you have worth. That's the first thing we can be. And then the church, then, as people after God's own heart, God's people stand against injustice and broken financial and social systems that perpetuate poverty on all levels. And what I mean by that is that there are Christian organizations. There are churches out there, big churches, and and Christian organizations that, that engage politically and legally with the apparatus of government and corporations in order to make large scale changes to the systems of power that influence poverty on a national or even an international scale, right? In the same way that William Wilberforce worked so diligently in his government for the abolition of slavery. Okay, so those systems exist, and as individual Christians, we should be supporting those things. Right, that those initiatives working in developing countries and microfinancing and and in government and lobbying the United Nations and, and multi stakeholder economic training and education and intervention, they're all worthy of Christian support. And you could read Richard Stern's The Hole in Our Gospel or The Poverty of Nations by Barry Asmus and Wayne Grudem, or, or you could go to the website for the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics to get a sense of those types of Christian responses to poverty. And we should be participating in those as well. But closer to home, What do we do here? What do we do at Lakeside? In addition to opening up our doors and welcoming all people, as James says, without any discrimination, what do we do here? What about the people we know? What about the people we see? What about the people we line up with at the supermarket? What is our personal Christian response? 
And this is important because we have a benevolent fund and it does good work. The JRHH team does good work. But they can't do it alone. And what we've been reading in Scripture here and what we've been hearing is that it's the, in the words of Jonathan Edwards, the bounden duty of every believer. It's the bounden duty of every Christian to be involved in this ministry to those who are in need. And we understand that the ministry to them is not primarily giving them money, but it's primarily giving them friendship and giving them relationship and giving them opportunity. And it's being generous to give to them everything that they need. And Jesus spoke to this directly. And I won't quote the whole thing. But when you look at our relationship with Jesus Christ and you look at what Jesus um, spoke about in Matthew 25, 31 to 40, and most of you will remember the text. This is Jesus telling his disciples of the judgment and the time to come and his assessment of the people before the throne, separating the sheep from the goats. And you remember, he says, I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and you gave me drink and I was a stranger and you welcomed me in and I was naked and you clothed me and I was sick and you visited me and I was in prison and you came to me. And they say, well, when did we see you? And he said, whenever you saw someone else, then you saw me. You were doing it for me. Well, Richard Stearns, who wrote The Hole in Our Gospel, he paraphrases that. He says, for I was hungry while you all had what you needed. I was thirsty, but you drank bottled water. I was a stranger, and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. I was sick, and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison, and you said I was getting what I deserved. That's the Richard Stearns version. And so we have to be careful. We have to understand how important this is to God and how strictly Jesus spoke about this in Matthew. That this care for the poor is fundamental to our faith in Jesus Christ and to the mission that he has called us on. People in poverty don't just need things, they need a whole new life. And so we break the barriers of classism, as we are told in James, right? That we break down those barriers and that we offer relationship and we offer friendship to those people. The other thing that we do is that we bring with them uh, the hope of the gospel, right? The thing that having relationships and having friendships with people who are in those situations, whatever it is that they're lacking, is that coming alongside of that is the reality that they need to find a new dignity and they need to find a new hope and they need to find a new confidence and that comes with the gospel, right? That we have opportunity then to share with them where our hope comes from. And by bringing them into relationship and bringing them into the church, they become, they, they start to belong at a church before they believe and eventually they be into becoming part of a community that, that stands against these things and encourages them and, and gives them the things that they need. And membership in, in the church reflects all the diversity of God's family in every manner that we can imagine diversity. And so this place can't be a place that's somehow a special club just for those who have it all together or who have the things that the world wants. This has to be a place for everybody. So we have a benevolent team. We have access to resources. We have people within this church that have relationships with those that are in the community and those within our own church who are suffering from poverty, not just a poverty and a lack of things, but a poverty in health, a poverty in, in relationships, a poverty in opportunity. And so if I can just make this really practical right now, this, this is where we're moving as a church because we've been talking about this on the JRHH team for, for a little bit. We've been trying to figure out how do we do ministries of mercy in a way that are effective? Because are we really supposed to just be kind of a, a lending institution or a bank where people come to us with their need and you know we find out a little bit more about them and they fill out a form and, and we make sure that they're going to do the right thing with the money and then we give them the money and then you know they 
you know, they go off and do whatever they need with it. Is, is that how we're supposed to operate? And we have Shepherd's Table, which is awesome, where we bring people in once a month and we, and we have a meal and a community meal and we sit down there with them. And so we have these things. We have the Benevolent Fund and we have, we have Shepherd's Table. And then we have partners like the Pregnancy Care Center, you know, and Youth Unlimited and, and, and places that, and the rec room that reach out into the community. And so if we need to go beyond it, if, if the issue of poverty is deeper than just needing things or needing money, then how do we as a church start to restructure so that this becomes pervasive in who we are as a people? And so, so this is where the challenge goes out to you now, that, that you just think on your heart about how this is. And there are people out there that are, that are doing this right now. So this is not I'm, not, I'm not scolding you because our people do this, but just maybe we can do it a little more and we can restructure a little bit to make this work better. And it's this, that we start to think of the the benevolent team, not so much that they're serving the poor people that come to them, which is true, they are serving those that are in need, but in fact, the benevolent team is serving you. Okay, they, they have resources, they have connections, they have money, and you have relationships. You are the agents of mercy in our church. You have friends that you know that are in need, that maybe need Money for food, that maybe need diapers for their kids, might be material things. But you also know that they are people that need friends, and they need relationships, and they just need a job opportunity, or maybe they need tuition, or maybe they need whatever it is that is the fundamental root cause that is affecting their poverty. You have those relationships. So I just I want you to just think about it this way now, that you're not giving money to the benevolent team or, or contributing to the benevolent fund so the benevolent fund then serves those that are in need, rather think of the benevolent team as serving you. You have the relationship. You have the hope. You have the friendship with the people that are in the community that have this need. And so what then happens is that you then come to us as a church. You then come to the benevolent team and you say, look, I've got this friend. I've got this relationship that I'm building with someone in need. And they're not a believer. They're far from the God. They're far from the church. Or maybe they're part of the church either way. But you say, look, if... This is where they're at right now. This is what would really help them. This is what would show love to them. This is how they would experience love. This is how I can live out the gospel to them. Is they need a couple hundred bucks for this, or they need 500 bucks for that, or they need their car repaired, or they need, you know, something happened, their barn burned down, and they need tuition or something. Like, whatever it is, you guys have that relationship. And so what you do is you come then and you think, the benevolent team is there for me. The benevolent team is there for me to leverage and to build into and to make use of our church resources to bring the gospel to people. Do you see what I'm saying? You see how that's a little bit different? And so we're not sitting there as a team just saying, oh, you know, you have a need, here's 100 bucks, or you have a need, here's $500. No, no, we're saying, we're partnering with people and saying, no, you have the relationship. We want you to come to us, tell us what this person needs, and let us Show that blessing through you so that you can build that relationship and show them the hope of the gospel in their life. Now, everybody needs to do that, right? Jonathan Edwards says this is the bounden duty of every Christian. And all of you are doing this. I all know that you guys all have relationships all over the place, right? And there's people in your life that have need, and you're serving them. And you're not necessarily serving them by giving them $200. There's people in your life that have a poverty of relationship, and there's people who have a poverty of spirit, and they are in despair, and you're serving them, and you're working really to the poorness in their life, and that's great. But then there's others of you who have this special gift, and that's who I'm especially speaking to right now, and I don't know who it is out there, but I'm just imagining that right now maybe God's working in your heart. There are those of you who have a special gift of really reaching out to those who are hurting. 
to breaking through the class divide, to breaking through the relationship divide, to adding more relationships to your life, to those who are in need, and wanting to see them break the cycle of poverty so that a year from now, two years from now, they're not the same person they were today. They're not in the same circumstances. Now, that's special ministry. There's a spiritual gift out there. You have to have the gift of compassion. You have to have the spiritual gift of mercy, right? And there's spiritual gifts out there, and there are are ways and and places and situations that God has put you where you can be what I'm going to call these agents of mercy in our midst. We're all to be agents of mercy, but I think there are some special ones. I think there's probably six or seven or eight of you out there who could be really special agents of mercy in this community, who could work with the benevolent team in helping you to build relationships through our partners like the Pregnancy Care Center or just through your own, whatever you do in your life, whatever circles you move in. And you build those relationships, and then from those relationships, one life at a time, we start to break this cycle of poverty. And we start to have that open-handedness that God talks about in Deuteronomy. When we find somebody in need, in our midst, we give what they need until they don't have want anymore. You see what I'm saying? And I think if we do this, then here, we don't have to worry about the world, but just here in Halliburton, and I had a map at one point. I looked up the map for Halliburton County, and uh, it had all of southwestern Ontario by area code mapped out with income. And, you know, it, it's really dark colors in the urban areas like Toronto and stuff like that where all the household incomes were like over 120, 130, 150,000. You know, and then you get you kind of the, light, the shade gets lighter and lighter and lighter until you get to Halliburton where it's like the average household income is less than $50,000 a year. And we're one of the poorest counties in this area. We're one of the poorest counties in the province. And so there are people out there in need, and we have. We have, what, what's the answer? We have the gospel. We have the hope, the ultimate hope that they have in a redeeming God who wants to redeem their circumstances and to redeem their lives and restore. And we have the love. We have the love of God and all the blessings that God has poured out on us to give to them. And so we cannot sit here with all of that stuff and not open up our hands to those people. So I'm, I'm just praying that we understand as a people how complex this issue of poverty is, that there are reasons that people are in poverty, and it, and it begins with health and relationship and with, with society and a whole bunch of other things, and, and that Scripture realizes that that's what it is. But then more importantly, the application to us as believers is that we recognize that we are meant to be agents of mercy out to the poor. And so I, I just, I'm going to pray now, and I just want you to think about whether that's you whether you can come alongside us as a church and you can be that hands and feet of Jesus out there in the community, working with our benevolent team, working with the people that have the resources to connect those that don't so that we can reverse this cycle of poverty. If we had five churches, ten churches, twenty churches doing that, just imagine, just imagine what the change would be in Halliburton. Let's pray. Father God, it's been a it's been a good summer, and you've, you've put on our hearts a lot of issues, wide-ranging, and the answer's always been the same. We have to look into your word. We have to hear your heart. We have to repent of our own disinterest or repent of our own fear or repent of our own whatever. It's different for all of us. And turn from what we think to what you think. And then knowing your heart, knowing what you've told us, believing in you, Bring your gospel and your love out to people. And so, Father, I just pray on this issue of poverty that we would understand it, that we would 
that, that we would break down any sort of weird thoughts in our heads about classism or about, you know, they're just lazy or, you know, why don't they get a job or, you know, that we would understand what you know, that these are the issues of, of poverty are deep-rooted in our society and in injustice. And beyond that, that the, the roots of poverty are, are rooted in things in a poverty of the person that, that, that money doesn't fix, that, that they need health, that they need relationships, that they need connections, that they need education, that they need dignity, that they need value, that they need a community, that they need a family. And then, Lord, that our eyes would be open that it's right here in front of us. Here's their family. Here's their dignity. Here's their connections. Here's their opportunity. Here's the food that goes on their table. Here's whatever it is they need this month. And Father, that it is your heart that that would be your people. And that we would be known for that. That we would be known for our justice. That we would be known for our generosity. That we would be known for our mercy. That we would be known for our love. And so, Father, I do pray. I do pray that you would raise up those that would join our benevolent team and would join me and join this church in being purposeful, not just kind of helter-skelter and here and there, but being purposeful in addressing this issue of poverty because there are people in need. There are people that are hurting. And wherever they reach, we want them to find your love, your grace, and your gospel reaching back to them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.